Hello and welcome to this Endo Life. I'm Jessica Duffin. I'm an Endo Warrior and Endo Health Coach, and this podcast is all about living and thriving with endometriosis. As always, this podcast is here for educational purposes only. Please consult your medical practitioner before making any nutritional changes or bringing in any supplements. Before we dive into today's episode, I want to give a shout out to my lovely sponsors at BU. And I wanted to tell you about their new bath bombs, which are naturally made and contain beautiful essential oils. And their peppermint and eucalyptus essential oils um, bath bomb is doing so well right now with endometriosis community. They're getting loads of feedback about it. And, you know, if you love the patches themselves you're going to love the bath bombs because essentially it's (laughs) the patch in a bath bomb um so you know if you're on your period or if you're in pain you could have a bath with some of the bath bombs or one of them i don't know you could have multiple if you want um and then yeah get out the bath maybe rub in some cbd balm and put your patch on top, which is um, what a lot of people are feeding back that they're doing. So um, I would love to do that, but um, I don't have a bath, so I can't. But if you have a bath, um, then, you know, I think these new bath bombs could be a lovely way to help alleviate some of your pain. So if you'd like to check them out, you can go to BU which is buonline.co.uk and you can also order them from anywhere in the world on cultbeauty.co.uk and they deliver worldwide. So before we dive into today's episode, I wanted to give a shout out to the lovely girls at Semaine. They are two sisters with endometriosis. They've been on the show before and they founded Semaine, which is a supplement company for people with periods to originally, their first supplement was to aid with PMS and period pain. And I know that it is a lifesaver for so many people with endometriosis and painful periods. I absolutely love that supplement. It's really helped me when I've had to kind of follow protocols for SIBO or, you know, I've had a stressful time and I've been worried about my period. I've been able to avoid a flare with that supplement and they've always been so kind and um, kindly sent me sent me them when I when I've needed them. And now they've come out with a new supplement called the Daily, and it is a hormone balancing supplement, which is designed to help with healthy skin, stable mood, fewer cravings in your luteal phase, blood sugar balance. And they recently gifted it to me. Honestly, I said this to my client the other day. My blood sugar levels have never felt so stable as they did when I was taking that day, daily supplement. As you guys know, I I work very hard to stabilize my blood sugar levels because that will keep inflammation down and it also ensures that you have healthy balanced hormones. It's, it's really, really key. And I have a history of having really unstable blood sugar. Originally growing up, it was because of my eating disorder. But then in later years, it was much more down to firstly following a vegan diet when I didn't understand how to build my plate, a healthy blood sugar balancing plate. And secondly, because of my microbiome and my microbiome because of SIBO is 
built to actually extract more glucose from my food and cause blood sugar instability. This is actually a really key piece of blood sugar. If your blood sugar is resisting all of the strategies you're trying, that is a massive clue that your microbiome is affecting the way that your blood sugar is is being controlled in your body. So we need to work on that, work on your gut. And mine has improved mine has improved massively, but I still react much more um erratically than someone else would to blood sugar fluctuations. And I couldn't believe the difference. It was like I had a whole month of like stable blood sugar. It was incredible. And as a result, I had much more of a healthier cycle. I felt a lot more satisfied. I had less food cravings. I just felt a lot more stable in energy. So I'm a really big fan of this. And as I said, blood sugar is a huge piece to managing your hormones, hence why blood sugar is such a big part of their their supplement. So the girls have kindly given me a discount code for you guys. It will get you 20% off your first um, order, whether that's the daily or the PMS and Peerage support capsules. And the code is ENDOLIFE, one word, all caps. So E-N-D-O-L-I-F-E. And that code is valid for the next six months, I believe. So you can use it at any time. Um, So let me know how you get on with them. I'd love to hear if you find them as amazing as I did. And I hope that they bring you a happier and healthier cycle and period. Hi, everyone. So you might remember back in August, I was promoting an event that I was speaking at, the wonderful IC Retreat, which was a virtual three-day event hosted by Joanna Bartlett, who we had on the podcast, gosh, about um, two months ago now. And the IC Retreat was all about empowering IC patients with tools, knowledge and support so that they could essentially live well with IC. And my presentation was a real deep dive into the connection between interstitial cystitis, endometriosis and SIBO and how to manage these conditions all together. And I've talked about this connection uh, with Dr. Seebecker on the podcast Um, And I talk about it in my courses, but I've never talked about it in this much detail um, before, ever. And I was so proud of this presentation. And I just felt so passionately that everyone should have this info because I was blown away as I was kind of collating all the research and I had it all in one place. I was like, holy shit, this is huge. So... I asked Joanna if I could share it with all with you guys because I think it's just so important to share. So here it is. Today's episode is this presentation from the IC retreat. And in this presentation, I discuss the prevalence of endo in the IC and SIBO community and the current research and stats, the definitions of endo and SIBO and the fears behind endo development and the two key causes of SIBO, how endometriosis can lead to interstitial cystitis or bladder-related conditions, and how endometriosis can actually lead to SIBO, how SIBO can contribute to the development of endo and interstitial cystitis, and the complexity of the chicken or the egg scenario with endo and SIBO, 
And in here, in this bit, I really go into detail about the bacterial contamination theory behind endometriosis. So that one's super interesting. I also talk, talk about the co-conditions of endo, IC, and SIBO. So I'm talking about POTS, hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, and MCAS, and the key thread connecting them all, and the symptoms to look out for. And then I talk about how endo and SIBO are diagnosed and how to treat both conditions in context of interstitial cystitis and bladder symptoms. So it is about an hour and 15 minutes long. Um, it's a real deep dive. Um, and I think it really brings together all of the information we have about these three conditions and how they overlap. So if you suffer with you know, two of these conditions or all three or even one really is worth listening to um, because it brings so much awareness of how one can lead into another. Now, if you'd rather watch the presentation, I have uploaded it to YouTube. So you just go to the show notes and click on the link and you can watch it as well. And if you want all of the references, they are in the show notes. I have provided you guys with 44 references. So uh, go wild, <laughs> read all of the science. Um, so I hope you find this episode really useful and as fascinating as I did. So welcome everyone. This is a session all about the IC endo SIBO connection. It's a bit of an obsession of mine. So um, a little bit about me. So as Joanna said, my name is Jessica Duffin and I'm a certified integrative women's health coach specialized in endometriosis and it is co-conditioned small bacterial overgrowth, otherwise known as SIBO. Um, and I do just want to point out that my training is as an accredited women's health coach, but I work with anyone with endometriosis regardless of their gender identity. And we'll get into that in a little bit. Um, and I'm also an endo warrior and I additionally have SIBO, IC, dysautonomia and MCAS, two new diagnoses last week. Um, and thankfully, like my years of training and experience has enabled me to live pretty much free of endometriosis pain and symptoms. Um, my IC is currently on its way into remission, finally, um, and I am working on my chronic and long term SIBO. Um, because of the MCAS and dysautonomia, I might actually have lifelong SIBO, but it doesn't mean it can't be managed well. And I'll be, I'll talk to you guys about that. Um, and so, you know, a little bit about my training, so, you know, you're in good hands. Um, I've studied with integrated women's health, uh, studied in integrated women's health coaching and nutrition for pelvic pain with world leading endo specialist, Dr. Jessica Drummond, who you'll be learning from today. Um, I've also studied SIBO with the world famous SIBO expert and doctor, Dr. Alison Becker, who is just lovely. I want her to adopt me, um, as well as leading SIBO doctor, Dr. Naralaj Kobe. And finally, I've studied women's hormone health with renowned women's health coach, Nicole Jardim. So lots of different training there. So before we dive in, I wanted to start with very quick definitions, and then we'll go a bit deeper into these as we go through the uh, through the presentation. Now, of course, you're all aware of what interstitial cystitis is, so I'm just going to look at the other two. So endo is short for endometriosis. Endo is a chronic condition where cells similar to the ones which lie in the uterus and break down during menstruation grow outside of the uterus, typically in the pelvic cavity, but they have been found on various organs in different areas, including the lungs, bowel, and diaphragm. 
Now, there is a lot to endo, including what it does to the body and the symptoms it causes. But for now, that's a super quick definition so that as I go through the next few slides, you have like some context and awareness. Now, SIBO stands for small intestine bacterial overgrowth. This is a condition where normal bacteria, so not pathogenic or, or bad bacteria, they grow in excessive numbers in the small intestine instead of in the large intestine where they belong. So now let's look of, at an overview of how these two are connected to interstitial cystitis. So in the research, IC has been dubbed as the evil twin of endometriosis because it's been found to affect 80 to 90% of endo patients. Now, they forgot about the third sister because, in fact, like these guys are triplets. IC is so prevalent in the SIBO community that it's considered a coexisting co condition of SIBO. And research has found that 81% of IC patients who also demonstrated GI symptoms were positive for SIBO. Now, finally, let's look at how endo and SIBO are connected. And this is a bit of a chicken or the egg scenario. We're not really sure which one came first, and it probably varies from person to person. So current research estimates 80% of people with endometriosis also have SIBO. The question is, why? So firstly, endometriosis causes adhesions, which are in short internal scar tissue that stick organs together and can stop organs from moving freely and functioning properly. And when these adhesions stick to the intestines, they can slow motility of the gut, which essentially just, just means movement. And this can lead to SIBO. So we'll get more into adhesions and SIBO later on because it's really relevant to this conversation. Now, on the flip side, SIBO also causes excess levels of toxins called lipopolysaccharides, just LPS for short, which are part of the cell wall belonging to certain bacteria types. And when these bacteria die as part of their natural life cycle, the cell wall breaks down and toxins float off and the immune system reacts. So these lipopolysaccharides have been found in the pelvic cavity of people with endo and have been shown to play a role in the development of endometriosis. So you can kind of see here, we're not really sure what comes first. And I think the research will eventually show that it, it's really dependent on, you know, the situation. It's a bit of a perfect storm scenario. So these are the current very top line stats that we have on these three conditions and how they overlap. But I'm going to get into the specifics. So we're going to first dive deeper into endometriosis. So endo generally affects people of reproductive age, though it has been known to continue uh, after menopause, and it can still grow even with a full hysterectomy, which is why a full hysterectomy is not a cure for endo. The current stat we have is that it affects one in 10 women worldwide. However, you don't need to identify as a female to have endometriosis. It can affect, affect trans men, non-binary people, and in extremely rare cases, it has been found in cisgender males who have been exposed to um, estrogen treatment and certain treatments. Um, however, it is predominantly a disease that affects uterus and ovary owners. Now, as we already discussed, endo is a condition where cells which are similar to those which lie in the uterus, but not the same, grow outside of the uterus. And these cells, like the ones in your uterus, follow the menstrual cycle and grow in response to estrogen and then break down when hormone levels fall during menstruation. And this creates internal bleeding and inflammation and scar tissue. 
So symptoms of endo vary from person to person and in severity, but they include painful periods, painful sex, and pain with ovulation, heavy bleeding and clots, although this is less to do with the endo directly and more so to do with the associated hormonal imbalances and uh, possibly in some people adenomyosis, which is a co-condition of endometriosis where endo is actually growing in the wall of the uterus. Um, symptoms also include pain with bowel movements or urination, bloating known as the endo belly, uh, which is likely due to the presence of SIBO or bacterial changes in the gut microbiome, which is very common with endo. Bowel symptoms like constipation, diarrhea, nausea, vomiting, and abdominal pain. And some may also experience bleeding with bowel movements around menstruation if the endo is on the rectum. There's also things like fatigue and brain fog, anxiety, and depression depression. So you don't need to have all of these symptoms to have endo. And in fact, you might not have all of them or any of them at all. And for others, the symptoms are absolutely debilitating. It really varies from person to person. So we're not quite sure what causes endo. We need to do a lot more research before we can fully understand it. However, at present, the theory is that, is that there are different strains of endo and that they likely have different causes. And additionally, it's not necessarily going to be one cause, but it's more likely going to be a couple of causes grouped together to create a perfect storm. So we could do a whole entire talk on the causes of endo, but here are some of the theories. Now, nearly all of them need further research and evidence, and many of them have limitations, but this is what we have so far. So genetic, so in some people, endo is passed on through generations, and in these people, some may have endo present from birth, which then becomes activated during puberty. Others may carry the gene, and then the gene gets triggered later on in life. And this sort of leads into the, another genetic theory where cells are triggered to mutate when exposed to certain risk factors like inflammation and toxins. Then we have the bacterial contamination theory, and this is a new area of research which we're actually going to talk about today. But in short, bacteria present in the pelvic cavity of people with endo release toxins, which contribute to the development of endometriosis and the dysfunction of the immune system in that area, which allows the endo to continue to grow. We then have retrograde menstruation, and this is when menstruation during menstruation, blood flows backwards and escapes into the pelvic cavity via the fallopian tubes. Now, retrograde menstruation does actually occur in nearly all menstruators, but the question is, why is this tissue able to implant and then morph into endometriosis in some, but not in all of us? And this is actually where the next theory comes in. So this is immune dysfunction. So people with endometriosis have impaired immune systems, especially in the area where endometriosis is growing. The immune system is behaving very oddly in the pelvic area. So the cells which should be cleaning up the endo don't function properly, but the cells which, have, which create healthy levels of inflammation normally are just working overtime, creating way too much of a good thing. And we're going to be talking about some of those today, but the cells specifically I want us to pay attention to are histamines, our mast cells. So mast cells release histamine and have been shown to aid in the growth and development of endo. And so if tissue is escaping through retrograde menstruation and the immune system is unable to clean it up, this could further support the idea that the tissue then implants and develops into endo once it's escaped. 
We then have toxic toxin exposure. So certain toxins in the environment like dioxins have been strongly associated with endometriosis and hormonal dysfunction. And that kind of links with the theory above where cells can mutate when triggered by a certain toxin. We finally have lymphatic spread, which is a theory based on cells spreading via the bloodstream and the lymph vessels. And this would explain why like endo has been found on places like the brain, in the nose, on the lungs, and odd, odd places. Okay, so regardless of the cause, we do know that there are certain factors that aid the continued development of endometriosis. And this is where I really focus on in my management of endometriosis. So some of the main ones are prostaglandin E2, which is a type of inflammatory cell that is found in the body naturally. Excess iron, which is ironic because most people with endometriosis have very low iron levels. Um, mast cells and histamine, estrogen, and lipopolysaccharides and bacteria. So now let's look at how endo can contribute to IC development and symptoms. So we're going to start with what's at the core of endo, and that is inflammation. Endometriosis is a chronic inflammatory condition. Um, we could do an entire presentation on this, but in the simplest of terms, endo triggers a constant inflammatory response from the immune system. So the immune system is our body's natural defense, and it releases white blood cells into the area of trauma or invasion just to heal and protect the body. And inflammation is a completely normal reaction from the immune system in response to a real or a perceived threat. So for example, if you cut yourself, your immune system will respond with inflaming that area. And the result that we can see physically is swelling, redness, and pain. But underneath, important healing is happening. The problem with endo is that it's resistant to our immune system and the immune system of someone with endo is also impaired. So the immune system just cannot do its job properly. The end result is a constant cascade of inflammation, but very little healing is actually being done, resulting in pain and swelling of the area and the formation of scar tissue. And the more irritated this area becomes, the more immune system, more immune cells are sent to the area to fix it. But of course, then that just results in more inflammation. Additionally, inflammatory cells such as prostaglandins actually feed endometriosis growth. And endometriosis lesions release inflammatory cells into the surrounding area as well. So endometriosis is very much a self-feeding disease. Now, over time, as this inflammation builds, it can spread to nearby organs like the bladder. But additionally, the immune response can spread via the bloodstream into the rest of the body. And this is one of the reasons why people with endo can have chronic fatigue and brain fog because inflamed cells cause problems with energy production and cognitive function. It's actually something called mitochondrial dysfunction. Now, if there's anything to pay attention to in today's session, it's this, because research is now indicating that histamines may be the link between all of these conditions. Histamines are inflammatory cells released from the immune system from cells called mast cells, which we just talked about a little, a little while ago, in response to allergens or to aid with healing. So you probably know of histamines in terms of hay fever. Now, histamines are also involved in healthy ovulation and menstruation and are necessary to, necessary to these processes. However, people with endo have higher levels of mast cells and histamines in the pelvic cavity and in and around the endometriosis lesions themselves, creating heightened pain and inflammation 
especially at these points of the cycle. So these points can often be worse. Additionally, histamines and mast cells have been found to be involved in the development of endometriosis and its continued growth. So getting histamines under control is really important for both symptom management and, and disease depression, so much so that research is actually now looking into this as a form of treatment. Now, of course, we also know that people with IC have higher levels of mast cells in the bladder and that the histamines are in part responsible for the pain and inflammation experienced with IC. Okay, I'm just going to quickly try and change that on my screen. Um, there you go. Okay. So, no, that didn't work. In both cases, these mast cells are extra sensitive, leading to histamines and inflammatory immune cells being released in excessive amounts too frequently. So you guys might have heard of a condition called mast cell activation syndrome. So this causes extra sensitive mast cells in the body, and it is now heavily associated with endo, though the connection is just not well understood. It's unlikely that every single person with endo has full-blown MCAS, but heightened mast cell activity and excessive histamine production is absolutely involved in endometriosis. So these excessive levels of histamines cause, cause problems for people with endometriosis, not just pain, but they cause things like histamine-related conditions such as eczema, asthma, and allergic rhinitis. And actually, we have higher levels of, of all of those. But to conclude, conclude, these heightened levels of histamines in the pelvic cavity can be a root cause of pain, pressure, and nerve sensitivity in the bladder because essentially they are inflammatory cells. So now let's look at hormones. So endo can create its own estrogen source, which it uses to fuel its growth. This can create higher levels of estrogen in the, pel in the local pelvic area. And additionally, people with endo actually have trouble clearing estrogen from their bodies due to the many gut and microbiome complications that they have. And daily bowel movements are really essential to prevent estrogen from building up in the body. And if you're not excreting your estrogen, it's going to be reabsorbed in your bloodstream from your gut. And equally, research has shown that many people with endo have genetic changes that cause their livers to struggle with eliminating estrogen. Now, as a result, some people with endometriosis can have higher levels of estrogen or at least imbalances in the ratio of estrogen to progesterone. And so whilst it is absolutely true that too little estrogen can cause problems for IC, so can too much. So during the menstrual cycle, estrogen rises towards ovulation and then it falls and then once more it rises again before menstruation. And the issue is, is that estrogen increases the production of histamines and vice versa, which would normally help the process of ovulation and menstruation. But if we have excessive estrogen, we have excessive histamines, right? <laughs> and the reverse, which can cause more pain and inflammation in the bladder region and the pelvic region. So now let's look at pelvic floor dysfunction. So the chronic pain nature of endometriosis plus the common bowel problems and urinary issues can eventually cause a hypertonic pelvic floor, meaning a tight pelvic floor. And the pelvic floor is a complex arrangement of muscles and nerves that support our skeletal structure, hold our organs in place, support organ function and allow for the movement of the limbs. 
And the pelvic floor is essentially like a, a bowl or hammock where, where the bladder and vagina and bowel sit in place. So you've got the bladder at the front, you've got the vagina in the middle, and you've got the bowel at the back. And these muscles affect the function of the organs through the contraction and release. So for example, contraction holds in your urine, whereas the release releases the urine. And it's widely understood that the majority of endometriosis patients have a tight pelvic floor. And this is when muscles of the pelvic floor begin to contract and become shorter and, and tighter. And as you know, when someone has regular pelvic pain, it can cause you to tense up. You know, you can adopt hunch over, adopt positions that can create a lot of tightness in the pelvic floor, such as a fetal position. And additionally, if someone is repeatedly straining during bowel movements, which can happen a lot with endo because of gut symptoms, or you're tensing with pain during ur urination, this will cause a further uh, tightness and dysfunction over time. Now, an endophysiotherapist once told me um, on my podcast that 70% of endometriosis patients have a hypertonic pelvic floor. I've not been able to find that stat or the research to back it up, but I can confidently say that about 80%, maybe more of my clients have some degree of pelvic floor dysfunction. Um, so it can vary uh, in terms of severity, but it's usually in every case that I see. So when we have a tight pelvic floor, the muscles are so constricted that they just can't move to allow for proper urination, bowel movement, or sexual function. So you get a lot of pain with sex with endo as well. And these muscles start to irritate the nerves and cause nerve sensitivity sensitivity because the nerves are now like squeezed in by the tight muscles and being compressed by the tight muscles. So we start having signals shooting up to the brain on, you know, constantly. We, and they're creating pain and sensations in the pelvic organs and area. They might create feelings of urgency, or you might not need to know that you need to go and, until it's too late. Now, following on from this, kind of related to this subject of like structural issues, um, I wanted to talk about adhesions and distorted fascia. So firstly, let's talk a bit about what adhesions are. So adhesions are a form of scar tissue. They are like web-like structures made of collagen. I always kind of see them as um, the, the spider webs that Spider-Man like shoots out of his hands. Um, and they grow in response to injury and trauma to like knit back together a wounded area and as part of the healing process from infection and inflammation. And so collagen strands bond together to protect the uh, damaged area and to allow healing to occur in a safe and isolated environment. And if any infections are present, then they protect the rest of the body by preventing the spread. And this is really relevant to SIBO later on. Unfortunately, they often persist after the healing has occurred and attach to muscles and organs. It's a real design flaw. I don't know why this occurs. And this causes muscles and organs to begin sticking together and it can restrict the mobility of the organs. Now, the pressure from adhesions is equivalent to 2,000 pounds per square inch, which is just insane. And so that's a lot of pressure and it's going to hurt and it's going to cause problems with organs that they're attached to or are putting pressure on. Now, adhesions occur in approximately 80 to 100% of people who have abdominal surgery. And that, I mean, that's the rough average um, because the studies have shown varying ranges from like 95% to 100% and then 65 to 100% adhesion occurrence after surgery. But because surgery is currently the only way to diagnose endo and is really the main treatment option available, 
patients can have multiple surgeries that may actually just be worse in their pelvic pain and problems in the long run. So a good surgery is important as part of endometriosis management, as long as it's good. Um, but repeated surgeries and a lack of focus on preventing adhesion formation can actually worsen this chronic pain condition and the associated IC. And I see this all the time. Problems tend to get worse after surgery. People think the endo hasn't gone. It's not that adhesions are formed. Um, so there's also then the fascia to consider. So the fascia is a thin sheet of tissue that's made from collagen that sits beneath your skin um, and holds your organs and muscles in place. And it also surrounds all organs, nerves and blood vessels, etc. And when the fascia is distorted by pelvic floor dysfunction, it can be very painful and affect mobility. So if you think about the fascia surrounding the body, like one bed sheet, I mean, that's not exactly how it works, but it's helpful analogy. If you pull one end of the bed sheet, the rest will wrinkle, right? If you pull the, the edge of your bed sheet when you're making the bed, you're like, oh, I've got to start again. So it's the same for fascia. If the fascia around the pelvis is being yanked to one side, for example, you might end up feeling it all the way up to your shoulders because it's all connected. So fascia can also be affected by surgery or endometriosis itself. So incisions from the surgery or lesions can cause scarring in the fascia, which creates like a puckering. So it creates that like pulled sheet um, that we talked about. Um, a bit like a stitch, like you've, you've tried to stitch your own cup, you've done it badly. And so this will distort the fascia in the pelvic area, if not the rest of the body. And the other issue is, is that endometriosis on the fascia is very difficult to spot. It can be translucent. Um, endo, FYI, takes on lots of different colors. It can be yellow, purple, red, black, brown, clear. So it's very difficult to spot if the surgeon is not specialized. So you have to go to a specialist to make sure they're picking up on endo on the fascia. Now, additionally, inflammation can also affect the fascia. Fascia contains layers of liquid um, which allow it to glide smoothly over organs so that the organs don't kind of get stuck. And when chronic inflammation occurs, inflammatory cells cause the fluid to like thicken and become sticky. So then the fascia gets stiffer and then the, the uh, organs and muscles, they should, you know, your organs aren't like flying all over the place, but they have a level of fluidity and like mobility. And so when they become stuck, it can cause um problems with their functioning and can cause pain and pressure. So now let's talk about endo on the bladder. So it is worth considering in some cases, um, not in many cases that I have seen, but it does occur, endometriosis might grow on the bladder. Um, it might have infiltrated the bladder wall, creating chronic inflammation and pain flares as those endo cells move through their monthly cycle. Um, an MRI, like a very good MRI by a specialist, may be able to pick up on endometriosis infiltrating the bladder. But if the lesions are on the bladder rather than growing into the bladder, so that's known as superficial. So the superficial is when it's on the pelvic um, wall or on a organ, but it's not grown into it. Superficial cannot be seen through an MRI. Um, it can only be seen with surgery. Now, Endo on the bladder, whether it's deep infiltrating or superficial, will usually need to be removed as safely as possible. They might not be able to get all of it because they don't want to damage your bladder. But um, 
normally they're going to need to try and remove it through surgery. So whilst the idea of endo on the bladder, I, I really appreciate it. it's a scary thought, the severity of endo doesn't correlate with symptoms. So someone can have superficial endo, you know, have lots of symptoms. That was actually my case. I don't have a lot of endo. I don't have um, deep infiltrating endo, but my symptoms were terrible until I managed to control them. And someone else can have lots of deep infiltrating endo and literally have no idea, not have any symptoms at all. Um, so additionally, even if endo is on the bladder, that doesn't mean we can't improve IC symptoms. That's not the be all and end all. I have clients with very severe and complex cases of endometriosis, and we're still able to drastically improve symptoms to the point where their daily life is not affected or they actually have no symptoms at all. Just a reminder that this episode is sponsored by BU. These natural patches last for 12 hours, so they bring you prolonged relief and can begin working on relaxing your muscles before the pain kicks in, so you're prepared even if your period comes during the middle of the day. Some people even find that wearing them a night before their period can really help soothe the inflammation in the area. To shop, just head to the link in my show notes. Okay, so now I'd like to talk about nerves. Unfortunately, nerves are often involved in endometriosis. And in fact, they can actually grow within the patches of endometriosis. And you've heard me mentioning lesions. The patches of endo are known as lesions. And so these nerves can become damaged by the endometriosis itself, as it can actually grow on nerve endings. But endo lesions can also compress the nerves, sending constant feedback to the brain obviously creating pain. And additionally, the nerves surrounding the endometriosis lesions can become hypersensitive due to the constant inflammation and kind of feedback. And finally, nerves can also be damaged during surgery, especially if the nerves are directly knitted up with the lesions themselves. Now, we know that the initial response from the nerves can spread. So perhaps in the beginning, only the nerves around the lesions themselves were involved. However, over time, this nerve sensitivity can spread, especially in the case of chronic pain and chronic inflammation. So the brilliant book, Why Pelvic Pain Hurts, and I really recommend buying it, it's on Amazon, um, explains it like this. So think of the initial nerves involved as an alarm on your house going off in the middle of the night. If you're not in to turn it off, eventually your next door neighbor stirs and looks out the window. If more time goes on, people in houses further down the street start waking up, turning on the lights, peering outside of the windows, maybe even coming out of their houses. So the nerves around the lesions might have started the alarm, but now the nerves in the bladder are involved too. So following on from that, we know that the nervous system is intrinsically involved in chronic pain conditions like endo and IC. So think of your nervous system as a highway between your brain and your body. Instructions are sent between them by the nervous system to allow our body to function. So in terms of how pain works, all brain, all brain, all pain is made in the brain. Now that doesn't mean it's not real. It's just literally how pain is produced regardless of the source. So nerves in the body send danger signals to the brain when there is an injury or a perceived injury in the body. The brain then responds with pain, so we pay attention and resolve the problem. 
And it is worth noting here that your nerves aren't firing off danger signals all the time. They actually have a threshold and danger signals are only sent when the danger risk exceeds a certain level and triggers a response from the nerves. Now, in a normal healthy scenario, once the initial threat has been removed and your stress response, your, your stress response will calm down and your nerves will go back to like a resting state and the pain should subside. However, with endo, we sort of have open wounds all over our pelvic cavity. Right? It's a constant threat, according to the brain, even if they're not being particularly active. And as a result, the brain may feel constantly in threat. And so the nervous system can't fully relax. And instead, it stays on high alert. And so over time, the threshold for sending nerve signals to the brain actually lowers because the brain is looking for any potential sign of threat because it's like, oh my God, we're under attack. I need to be hypervigilant. So no matter how small the, the threat may be or how everyday, like normal it is, the nerves can start being triggered. And as the pain continues, your brain actually stops releasing its natural pain relieving chemicals like dopamine because it wants us to feel pain and it wants us to respond to the pain so we address the problem. And so this means we become even more sensitive. So of course, this just creates pain in the bladder and general pelvic region. And so normal activities like the bladder filling or emptying can suddenly cause pain. And actually, it's, it's really worth noting here that we've done MRI scans of the brain and people with chronic pain literally have physical changes in their brain that um, favors the pain pathway. So your brain is designed to favor pain pathways. So this is why nervous system um, work is so important with chronic pain. Okay, so now let's look at how the gut is involved and we are gonna deeper dive into that with the SIBO piece. So 60 to 70% of the immune system is in and around the gut. So on the other side of your intestines, there is a fortress of immune soldiers waiting to attack any viruses, bacteria, kind of baddies that have entered the body via the mouth and are looking to seep through the intestinal barrier and into the body. It could be through eating, it could be swimming in the lake, um, it could be, you know, sleeping with your mouth open, there's, there's bacteria and viruses everywhere. So providing the intestinal barrier is intact and healthy, not many of these threats can get past. And so the immune system shouldn't need to react aggressively. However, chronic stress, including stress from pain, can actually cause that intestinal barrier to weaken. And additionally, people with endometriosis have been shown in the research to have more allergies and sensitivities. So that can create an irritated and weakened gut lining and also exaggerate immune reactions. And we also know that people with endometriosis have microbiome changes, which can create a more inflammatory environment as well as a high prevalence of SIBO. So SIBO is associated with leaky gut, meaning there are like tiny holes, microscopic holes in the gut lining, almost like imagine sausage skin and then you've just taken a pin all over it. That's essentially what we're doing. Um, and these holes allow food particles, toxins, bacteria, and so on to leak through the gut lining into the bloodstream and um, into the other side, triggering an attack from the awaiting immune system. And so this inflammatory reaction is spread via the bloodstream because the bloodstream is right there throughout the body, creating chronic and systemic inflammation. And we also know that bacteria and toxins from SIBO, known as LPS, or lipopolysaccharides that I um, brought up earlier, they can escape from the gut via leaky gut. This has actually been shown in the research 
into the pelvic cavity, creating local inflammation and fueling further endometriosis growth, as we discussed before. And additionally, the microbiome of the gut can directly affect the microbiome of the bladder. And so if there is an overgrowth or a pathogenic bacteria in the gut like E. coli, it can actually spread to the bladder too. Um, and we're going to be talking about that a bit more with the CBPs. Now, of course, all of these sources of abdominal and full body inflammation can and often do lead to chronic bladder inflammation. And, you know, if you look at a cross section of the abdomen and pelvis, you would literally see the intestines are almost on top of the bladder. So you can see how easily that inflammation spreads. Okay, so that wraps up our section on endo. So now let's look at SIBO. This is the point where I really geek out. So... As we discussed earlier, SIBO is the presence of bacteria in high numbers in the small intestine. So the small intestine was not designed to house a lot of bacteria. It should have like a very small amount, but its main purpose is simply to absorb nutrients from food, whereas the large intestine was designed to house our gut microbiome and to interact with it. So if you're not sure what I mean by microbiome, it's just that, you know, those good bugs that we think about when we're taking probiotics or yogurt, we're feeding those good good gut bugs in our large intestine. Now, because the small intestine is not designed for hosting a large microbiome, the bacteria actually damages our small intestine. The gases these bacteria produce cause IBS symptoms and full body symptoms. And the bacteria also compete with us for our food, creating nutrient deficiencies, especially B12, iron, um, and fat-soluble uh, fat uh, vitamins. So there are three types of SIBO defined by the type of gas these specific bacteria produce. So hydrogen, methane, which has been renamed to methanogen overgrowth as it exists in the small and large intestines, so it isn't technically SIBO on its own, and hydrogen sulfide. Um, and it's also worth noting here that research is estimating that 60 to 70% of IBS cases are actually caused by SIBO. And so this is really relevant um, for today's presentation because we know that IBS has been strongly associated with IC. And the research has shown that 40 to 60% of patients with IBS also have IC. So how many of them have SIBO? So the IBS symptoms of SIBO include gas, bloating, nausea, diarrhea or loose stools, constipation or hard stools, acid reflux or GERD, burping, indigestion, um, and in rare cases, vomiting. And SIBO can also cause full body symptoms and conditions such as achy joints, body and muscle pain, brain fog, headaches, rashes and skin conditions such as eczema and rosacea, especially rosacea, interstitial cystitis, restless leg syndrome, brain fog, chronic fatigue and anxiety, just to name a few. Um, now, you don't need to have all of these symptoms to have SIBO, but typically you will have the signature symptom, which is bloating and also some of the other IBS symptoms. Now, to understand why SIBO occurs, we have to understand something called the migrating motor complex or MMC for short. So the MMC is like a wave-like motion that occurs in the small intestine two hours and uh, after food and overnight. So when you eat, it turns off. Its purpose is to clean the small intestine of food debris and bacteria and move them into the large intestine where they belong. So this is sort of like washing the dishes after the food has been eaten. So the bulk of the food is already in the large intestine, but we're now just cleaning the leftovers. So when the MMC is impaired, 
This allows bacteria to build up in the small intestine and eventually SIBO develops. So there are two main causes of MMC impairment um, with many, many paths leading to those two main causes. So they are structural. So structural means there is something wrong with the anatomy of the intestines. It might be adhesions, kinks, obstructions, or um, of some sort, or loops in the small intestine that are stopping the migrating motor complex from moving through the small intestine properly. So the MMC is working fine, but it just can't get um, past the structural problems. And then there's functional. So this means something has gone wrong with the function of the MMC. It has been damaged or impaired in some way, so it's now slower. The most common way that MMC is damaged is from food poisoning or gastroenteritis. Though many things slow down the migrating motor complex, including diabetes, hypothyroidism, and antibiotic use, but there are tons of things that slow it down. Um, there are multiple reasons why functional or structural issues can occur, and these are known as risk factors. So knowing your risk factors and root causes helps to treat the SIBO and prevent it from returning in the future. Now, unfortunately, not all risk factors can be cured, so it may be about long-term management of SIBO. doesn't mean you can't live well with it, just means that it might require some long-term management. Now, Let's dive into that stat that I mentioned earlier. So preliminary research has shown that 81% of those with IC and gut symptoms have SIBO. However, if we go a bit deeper, they found that only 6% had methanogen overgrowth, whereas 29% had hydrogen sulfide SIBO, and the remaining 65% had hydrogen. But what's really interesting is that hydrogen sulfide is very difficult to test for. So the levels of hydrogen sulfide could have been much higher. Now, we have one test now, it came out last year, that tests for hydrogen sulfide, but that was designed after this study. Previously, we were diagnosed based on symptoms and the possibility of a pattern on a test called a flatline, where no methane and no hydrogen is being produced. And there should be naturally some hydrogen in the, in the large intestine, maybe a little bit of methane, but not really. Um, so we want to see a bit of hydrogen on this test. But when we have a flat line, there's neither of these gases are showing up. And what that is telling us is that it takes, I think, four hydrogen molecules and one methane molecule to make hydrogen sulfide. So basically, the bacteria are taking those gases and making hydrogen sulfide gas. Now, this isn't an, a super accurate way to test for hydrogen sulfide because 60 to 80% of people won't get that flat line. It won't show up as a flat line. So it's very likely that the levels of hydrogen sulfide were higher. We just weren't getting the, the test results. Now, typically, both hydrogen and hydrogen sulfide are associated with diarrhea-type patterns and SIBO, and methane is associated with constipation. However, you can have two types of SIBO or all three, which may create alternations between constipation and diarrhea. Um, and additionally, the symptoms don't have to cor correlate with the SIBO type. This is just what we see typically. So what's the significance of this study and why can SIBO contribute to IC development? So we're going to start with hydrogen sulfide. So those of us in the SIBO field, we do tend to see IC as being more present in hydrogen sulfide patients, even though hydrogen is coming up in the research as being more prevalent. What's interesting is that the new test is kind of telling us that 
a lot of what we thought were hydrogen patients are actually hydrogen sulfide patients, but the new test is so new that we can't really categorically say that. So there may be a lot more hydrogen sulfide than we thought. So these patients um, tend to have more IC. They tend to feel sicker. They tend to feel worse. They have a lot of full body symptoms, the ones that I mentioned earlier. Um, now, the other types of SIBO, they can cause all of these symptoms too. It's just that we tend to see more of these symptoms and worse cases in the hydrogen sulfide patients. And this is because hydrogen sulfide in excessive levels is a neurotoxin. It's actually one of the worst neurotoxins in the world. And it causes nerve sensitivity, inflammation, and cell dysfunction. And in fact, research has shown that when the bladder cells are exposed to hydrogen sulfide, it actually causes contractions of the bladder muscle, which controls urination. So for me, I was just like, <laughs> when I, learned, I was like, oh my gosh, um, it's just mind blowing what hydrogen sulfide is capable of doing. So recently, they also discovered some of the bacterial strains causing the hydrogen sulfide type SIBO. Um, and many of them are also the same bacteria which causes chronic UPIs, including E. coli and Klebsiella. And so this means that bacteria could be spreading from the anus during bowel movements. That's the usual way that we contract UTIs. And then it's making its way up the urethra and into the bladder. Now, similarly, some of these bacteria strains have also been found in the pelvic cavity of people with endo, specifically E. coli again suggesting bacteria have translocated from the small intestine, likely from leaky gut into the pelvic cavity. So SIBO also causes something known as visceral hypersensitivity. And this is when you can experience pain, discomfort, or sensations from normal activities in the organs. So for example, the bladder feeling becomes painful, or you're just really acutely aware of it, or the need to have a bowel movement becomes painful or just very, very sensitive. And this is in part, of course, caused by the nerve sensitivity, which can come from hydrogen sulfide, but also from systemic inflammation and high histamine levels, which we're going to look at next. So SIBO is known to be a trigger for inducing histamine intolerance and mast cell activation syndrome, which we talked about earlier. Now, another chicken and the egg scenario, having MCAS is also a risk factor for developing SIBO because MCAS can actually alter the motility and the function of the gut, leading to a buildup of bacteria in the small intestine. And so SIBO causes malfunctions in digestion and depletes our natural digestive enzymes, bile, and stomach acids. And so levels of the digestive enzyme which break down histamine, uh, called DAO, that can actually lower due to SIBO, which means our body is less able to cope with the amount of naturally occurring histamines from food. So when we think about histamine, we should think of it as a bucket. So the the body can cope with a certain amount of histamine, but when that bucket overflows, we get reactions. And this is what's often happening in the case of people with endo, IC, and SIBO. And as we learned earlier, excessive histamine in the body can create inflammation and pain in the pelvic and abdominal organs alongside the rest of the body. And it, they, can, it, they can also cause immense gastrointestinal distress as well. So now let's talk about inflammation and lipopolysaccharides. So when the gut is irritated, as in the case of SIBO, it will create an inflammatory environment, which as we learned earlier, can spread through the body and more locally, such as the pelvic region. Now, additionally, SIBO is known to cause leaky gut, which allows for further inflammation and the translocation or spreading 
of bacteria and inflammatory triggers such as LPS or lipopolysaccharides. Now, LPS has actually been shown to trigger the release of histamines and other inflammatory immune cells from mast cells in the body. So by healing the gut lining and reducing the number of lipopolysaccharides, we can actually lower the levels of histamines and inflammation in the body. And the theory that they have about the association between SIBO and IC at the moment is that the LPS is triggering this, um, this histamine response, which is triggering things like nerve sensitivity. Now, I want to talk about neural crosstalk. This is another way that nerves are involved in the development of IC symptoms. So neural crosstalk is a communication of nerves between organs, especially the intestines and bladder. And they communicate in order to function properly. But research has also shown that they communicate in times of distress when the bladder becomes irritated. And when the bladder becomes irritated, the gut becomes irritated and vice versa. So if we think about endo being a constant threat to the pelvis, we can think about SIBO being a constant threat to the intestines, right? And so as SIBO tends to be a long-term and often underdiagnosed condition, we can end up with chronic bladder irritation. And on a related note, the study linking SIBO and IC found that 62% of in 62% of patients, the IC symptoms developed after the GI symptoms began, which correlates with what we see with neurocrosstalk, right? Okay, so now it's worth mentioning pelvic floor dysfunction and adhesions again. So if you think about the constant pain, hypersensitivity and bowel movements of IBS, you can easily see how this can lead to pelvic floor dysfunction. So the pelvic floor can, and, and this pelvic floor dysfunction can in turn cause more problems with bowel movements and the bladder. And additionally, Though adhesions from endo can actually cause SIBO, SIBO itself can also be a source of adhesion formation because the inflammation of the intestines can trigger the body to try and heal and protect the area. And the body sort of treats SIBO as if it's an infection. It's not an infection, but the body sees it as one. So if these adhesions spread and involve the bladder, or at least distort the pelvic region in a way that affects the bladder, this could, of course, impact bladder function and sensitivity. Now, that wraps up my individual highlights on SIBO and endo, but I did just want to shine a spotlight on a triad of conditions which, has been, which have been strongly associated with endo, IC, and SIBO in the research. So MCAS, which you're, very, you're now aware of, often comes with two coexisting conditions, postural tachycardia syndrome, or POTS, and hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. So POTS belongs to a collection of conditions classified as dysautonomia, which means a dysfunction of the autonomic nervous system. The autonomic nervous system controls automatic functions in our body, such as heart rate, blood pressure, and digestion. And whilst the main symptoms include dizziness, a recent heart, and breathing difficulties, POTS and dysautonomia patients also suffer from IBS and IC symptoms and are often diagnosed with both. Hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos syndrome is a condition that belongs to a group of conditions that all fall under the umbrella of Ehlers-Danlos syndromes. Um, and all of them are rare except for the hypermobile type. And these Ehlers-Danlos syndromes, they affect the connective tissue in the body, also known as collagen. So skin, soft tissue between joints and all organs are affected. And as a result, the intestines can become like droopy and floppy, leading to a buildup of bacteria in the small intestine, right? It's that structural um, cause that we talked about earlier. Now, additionally, people with hypermobile EDS also often have bladder symptoms. Um, 
And hypermobility can exist on a spectrum. So the worst type is a hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, um, but you can still have hypermobility, but not EDS. And having hypermobility can still be associated with POTS and MCAS. So whilst it's not well understood, it's now thought that the connecting link between all of these conditions, including endometriosis, is histamine. All of these conditions are mediated, worsened or caused by excessive histamine production. And whilst we don't fully yet understand it, there is fantastic research going on. And I've actually linked to some of the research in the references. So you can have a little look at that. So let's quickly talk about the diagnosis for SIBO and endo. So for endo, the diagnosis is really difficult because it's often dismissed by doctors. A typical time frame is about 10 years from the onset of symptoms. However, armed with the right information and an awareness of endo, you can request for this to be investigated. And I've linked to some resources at the end of the slides to help you do that. So whilst advanced MRIs can pick up on some endometriomas, which are a variant cysts caused by endo, as well as some deep infiltrating endometriosis, an accurate diagnosis can only be given by a small keyhole surgery known as a laparoscopy. Um, if you can't see endo on the MRI, it does not mean it's not there. For SIBO, despite whatever you may hear, don't let anyone tell you otherwise, a stool test or urine test cannot diagnose SIBO. Only a SIBO breath test or a small intestine biopsy can diagnose SIBO, um, the type of SIBO and the severity of SIBO. So in the slides at the end, I have linked to my guide on how to test for SIBO properly and how to um, interpret your results. Now, the biopsy is not the typical way that we do this because it's very invasive and it's difficult to find a specialist who is able to do it and who understands SIBO. Um, so at the moment, a home breath test is a go-to method. Uh, I also want to mention that SIBO research is in its infancy, um, and there are very few specialists who truly understand it and know how to diagnose it correctly. So I strongly suggest that you either use my resources to help you to diagnose it, or you work with a practitioner um, who has trained with Dr. Alison Seebecker because she, is, uh, she provides the most comprehensive SIBO training that we currently have on offer. What about the treatments for these conditions? So for endo, we don't, as of yet, have a cure. So most of our treatments focus on symptom management and suppression of the disease. So conventional treatments include surgery, painkillers, and hormonal treatment. However, many of the above come with unacceptable side effects. They don't work for everyone, and they don't offer long-term solutions. Um, they literally just offer symptom suppression. And we also have to consider all of the other factors that play into endometriosis, pain and development, right? Sure, we can take birth control to lower estrogen levels, but that's not lowering the estrogen levels in the lesions themselves. So in my practice, I focus on anti-inflammatory nutrition, supplements specifically shown in the research to target endometriosis growth and pain. They do exist. Um, hormone balance and support gut healing, nervous system regulation, pelvic floor physiotherapy, and adhesion treatment. And whilst there are, there are many other areas that I do work on with my clients for endo, these are like some of the core practices and needle movers. And as you can see, all of them will aid with your IC healing. So that's amazing. 
Now, for SIBO treatment, it can be long and complicated. And so I always explain to my clients, it is best to be in a good place mentally and physically and financially, unfortunately, because trying to tackle SIBO is, is tough. Um, now, you can still improve your bladder, uh, your bladder um, pain and, and bladder function and your gut in the presence of SIBO. So I do really encourage you to try and get to the best point that you can before pursuing SIBO. Like I want you to feel as well as you can before doing the SIBO so that you're resilient. Um, however, like I appreciate in some cases, you might urgently need to do the SIBO treatment because you're just so sick from the SIBO. So obviously you might need to start there. Um, and additionally, at some point, you're probably going to get to that point where you're like, okay, I can only progress so far without doing the SIBO treatment. But we just want to get you to that point where you're resilient before you do that. So the treatment for SIBO involves either antibiotics, antimicrobial herbs, or something called the elemental diet. Um, and treatment tends to involve multiple rounds, minimum of three at the very minimum. Typically takes four to 12 months, depending on the case. So four is easy. Easy case. 12 months is what I normally see because I tend to see complex cases. So if someone tells you that they can clear your SIBO in a month and one round of treatment, just run. They are not a good SIBO practitioner. Um, there is also a supportive diet that runs alongside treatment and a prevention of relapse phase after treatment to prevent the SIBO from coming back or at least to kind of prolong your time in remission. Um, that doesn't, you know, in two thirds of cases, it's going to come back and it's going to be chronic. That doesn't mean you're going to have terrible symptoms forever. You can live well with SIBO. You just need to get it under control and also discover your root causes and treat them if you can. Dr. Alison Seebecker literally has chronic SIBO, but you wouldn't know she's so well. Um, for those of you with IC and SIBO, the good news is, is that in research, um, they found that by day 11 on the antibiotic rifaximin, which is not your typical antibiotic, it's actually really good for you, weirdly, 40% of patients had a great or moderate improvement in their IC symptoms with another 40% experiencing mild improvement. So because IC often does have multiple causes, it's not, you know, it's not that treating SIBO rifaximin is going to cure all of your IC, but you can see it goes a long way to helping you get there if you have SIBO. So when it comes to doing the treatment, um, because it can be complex and expensive, I really recommend you either work one-to-one -one with a practitioner or you follow a course, there are a couple of practitioner courses, or you follow a book by a practitioner so that you don't waste your time or money and that you do it correctly. Um, don't Google it because someone will tell you to take a herbal complex and eat kiwis and it's just not accurate. Um, so before we wrap up, I just wanted to focus on this final point that nervous system is key. So to close, if you're not sure where to start, I see nervous system regulation, and I haven't put the word in here, and I, I really wish I did, but vagus nerve stimulation specifically, vagus nerve support, as being one of the most important things we can do in this healing process. Not only will it calm down the pain signals, but it will calm down the neural cross-talk and hypersensitivity of organ functions, such as urgent bowel um, uh, movement, urgent urination. And it can actually also calm down mast cells too. And equally, if POTS or dysautonomia are present, regulating the nervous system will actually improve the symptoms of this because it is a nervous system um, condition. Um, and regulating your nervous system can also help you deal with the stress of these multiple diagnoses. I'm sure some of you are sitting here like, oh my God, I've got another condition to consider. So 
I understand that can be really tempting to so hide it. from these Thank conditions. So but when we know the beast that we're if dealing with, we want to, to tackle find out it, more right? about what I do. If we're in the dark as to what's causing our symptoms, we're in the dark well with it, on how to manage them and reduce them. So by regulating our nervous system and our stress response, it can give us the physical and emotional resilience to actually take on these new conditions and learn ways to also get um, a free guide to managing endometriosis naturally on my website. Um, I've put the link in my show notes. It's a beginner's guide to getting started and all of the areas that I um, have worked on to help reduce my endometriosis symptoms and pain and live well with endometriosis. As always, if you like this show, please rate, review and or subscribe. It really, truly does help others to hear the podcast and hopefully will help them to live better with endometriosis. This episode was produced by The Pod Farm. Whether you're an established podcaster or just getting started, visit thepodfarm.com to see how they can help you go from an idea to a finished show that's ready to be heard by the world. Music.